But those of us that are remaining, I invite you to turn to the book of 1 Kings. As we are now in chapter 4. Let's go before the Lord and ask His blessing upon His Word. Heavenly Father, we ask that You would illumine Your Word. That You would not only make it understandable to our minds, O Lord, but that You would prick our hearts. That You would show us Your goodness to us through Your Word. We ask that it would be indeed a great blessing to us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, those of you that know that it's been my practice to preach consecutively through books of the Bible, and perhaps you have done a bit of homework during the week, you've read ahead a chapter or two, I highly recommend that. And you may have come this week and looked at it and said, wow, I wonder what he's going to do with that. (laughs) And then you flipped the page and looked at chapters 5 and 6 and said, okay, it's more lists of stuff. What's he going to do with all these details? You might even say to yourself, this is kind of a boring chapter in the Bible. It's about how big Solomon's dinner table was and how many horses he had and that some guy whose name I can't pronounce was in charge of this and some other guy whose name I also can't pronounce was in charge of that. What's going on with all these details? Why can't God just fast forward like I can with my remote? to the good stuff, you know? Elijah, calling down fire from heaven. Elisha, raising people from the dead. There's some really, some big work of God going. You see, that's sometimes a temptation for us with God's Word. If we're honest with ourselves, that can happen. But what we need to do is think that God has given to us sometimes these levels of details in His Word for a reason. You may recall that last week we looked at Solomon's prayer for wisdom. The week before we looked at Solomon being wise and taking care of his enemies. And then he came to the Lord and said, I'm not able to govern this your people. I need wisdom. And the Lord said He would grant His request. And so this week what we are going to see and look at is God's answer to his prayer. You see, we wouldn't think it would be trivial. We wouldn't go uh, and go to sleep or nod if someone we were having a conversation with was telling us in a long-winded way of the ways in which God had answered their prayers, would we? We would rejoice with them. We would want to know how God had kept his promises. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. God's answer to Solomon's prayer. And the first thing that we will see is that God has answered it by creating a well-oiled machine. A well-oiled machine that is the kingdom of Israel. And then Solomon has what any politician, what any ruler would want. He has a dream political platform. It's a platform of peace and prosperity. But the other thing that I want us to see at the end here is the reality of life. That may not be what you think when I say the reality of life. When I talk about life's reality, we think of hardness and difficulty. But that's not what our text shows us, what is the reality of life. 
The reality of life is God keeping His promises to His people. So let's look then at first a well-oiled machine, then a dream political platform, and then finally the reality of life. Our chapter begins in a very unassuming way. King Solomon was king over all Israel, and these were his high officials. Azariah the son of Zadok was the priest. Elihoreph and Ahijah the sons of Shisha were secretaries. Jehoshaphat the son of Ahilud was recorder. Benaniah the son of Jehadiah was in command of the army. Zadok and Abiathar were priests. Azariah the son of Nathan was over the officers. Zabud the son of Nathan was priest and king's friend. Abishar was in charge of the palace. And Adoniram, the son of Abda, was in charge of the forced labor. The first thing that I want you to see is God begins to explain how he keeps his promise to Solomon in a very unassuming way. What he basically says is, the kingdom is well organized. The right people are in the right places doing the right jobs. Some of them are people whose names are familiar to us, Benaniah, Zadok, even Abiathar. But you also see that the kingdom doesn't stand on pretense. Because when we last left these people, Zadok was the high priest, and now his son, Azariah, is the high priest. That doesn't mean that Zadok doesn't have a job. It just means that he's laboring in another part of the kingdom. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes the Lord raises up other people beside us. And one could imagine that Zadok was not miserable about that. He wasn't jealous. He was probably as proud as a dad could be that his son was high priest. Maybe even as proud as a dad could be when his son joins the church. But you see, there's no infighting here. Even Abiathar, the former enemy of Solomon, is serving. The kingdom is united and it is organized. This is a little detail that we shouldn't miss. God is answering Solomon's prayer. And he has laid out main officials. You see that there were secretaries. No, these are not folks that wear wireless mics and take dictation. This is more like Condoleezza Rice or Jim Baker. It's a secretary of state. These are high-level officials. And there's not one but two of them. We see now that Solomon's kingdom has grown to such an extent that there is one secretary to take care of internal affairs and one for external affairs. Israel is now a player on the main scene. There is even a chief historian. That's who the recorder is. Again, that's not some kind of prehistoric MP3 player. It's a man whose job is literally in the Hebrew, he is the rememberer. He writes things down so that they can look back in years to come and see what God has done in their midst. Benaniah and Nathan have been rewarded for their work. God has established Solomon's kingdom. Now, if you think about it, it's quite amazing. It was not, but perhaps about 80 years earlier, that Saul was king. And that Israel was a little backwater place trying to eke out survival when being attacked by another small tribe called the Philistines. And now, Israel is a major player on the scene. They get tribute from nations. The Egyptians respect them so much that they want to have a marriage alliance. Solomon is known in Mesopotamia. 
all of this has been done in a very short time by God. Because even David in his reign was not established. He had to flee Jerusalem. He had several uprisings. And it was just a few chapters ago that Solomon himself might have seemed not to be able to be king. He was a few minutes away from the hanging noose. But now God, in a short span of time, is answering Solomon's prayer beyond anything he could think to ask for. And Solomon has organized up this country. And so we see it's not only organized, there are changes. There are changes in the system. Do you notice this first paragraph with all, or excuse me, it's actually the second paragraph in your book, the 12 officers with all of these names that we can't pronounce. Do you notice something interesting about that list? Each one of those men is in charge of an area that is not directly linked to a tribe. That's a pretty big change. You see, up until this point, all of Israel had been divided along tribal lines. Solomon changes that into districts. That's a big deal. It's as if, for example, the Congress decided to make Houston a part of Mississippi, and Dallas a part of Oklahoma, and New Mexico became part of Texas. Just changing things around. But even more than a state, we're talking about family, clan, tribal loyalties. There's another big change in the life of Israel. It's seen in this little phrase here that Adoniram was in charge of the forced labor. Now, Israel was not to be slaves. They had been freed from slavery in Egypt. But still, they have to be conscripted for work. This is God also keeping a promise. You see, if they had back-breaking work, they could know every time that they had to rub their back or have somebody massage their shoulders that God keeps his promises. We see that in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 8, in verses 10 through 18. When the people ask for a king, and Solomon says, or excuse me, Samuel says, you don't want to ask for a king. Samuel told them the words of the Lord, and he said, these will be the ways of the king. He'll take your sons and appoint them to be chariots, and to be horsemen to run before his chariots. He'll appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties. And he'll take some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest. He'll take your daughters and make them cooks and make them bakers and perfumers. He'll take the best of your fields. He will take a tenth of your grain. He'll take your servants, your male servants, your female servants, the best of your young men and put them to his work. And the people said, oh, we don't care. We want a king. We want to be like other nations. And God says, I'll keep my promise. You can go work cutting stone and marble. You can go work in the forests. You can go work for the king. What I say comes true. And this leads to dissatisfaction and dissension. The seeds of it are starting to be sown here. And it's not dissatisfaction because of Solomon and his wisdom... Because Solomon is taking what he's been dealt, and he does the best he can with it. It's dissatisfaction rooted in Israel's rejection of God in 1 Samuel 8. It's why our good man Adoniram here doesn't meet a very good end. In 1 Kings 12, Solomon's son sends out Adoniram, who is taskmaster over the forced labor, 
And the first thing they do when they see him is they kill him with stones. They say, this is our chance to get rid of this guy. It's a pretty big change. It reminds us, and we need to think about this in families and in church, that maximum efficiency is not always the best thing. Just trying to do something the best way it can with the least resources is not always God's way. That's what Solomon did. It makes perfect sense to place Adoniram in charge of the forced labor. But you see, he's sowing seeds of dissatisfaction and dissension. But that's not what we see right now in this picture. Right now is the good life. It is, to borrow an idiom, mourning in Israel. Times are good. I think every politician in my lifetime, and in probably every lifetime before mine, always runs on a platform of peace and prosperity. I will keep you safe, and I will put money in your pocketbook. Sometimes it doesn't seem like our rulers can give us both, and we're trying to decide whether we'd rather be safe or have a new plasma TV. But Solomon here has provided both, because God has given him wisdom We look down here that the people of Israel, in verse 20, ate and drank and were happy. The people were happy as a result of what was going on. Solomon had put in all these reforms and peace was found in the valley, as it were. Look at verse 21. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Now, I want you to think about that. Because you don't need to go much further than your newspaper to know that the land of Palestine is known for war, lack of safety, and death. As a matter of fact, just these past few days, there's been war in Gaza, with rockets going from one side and bombs coming from the other, and children caught in the middle. It's been like that, For thousands of years. But now, at this time, there is peace. God has kept his promise, and there is peace for all of Israel. The nations that David defeated are now still subdued. Solomon doesn't have to go out on more and more expeditions to pacify these other nations. God gives him peace and rest. And the people are safe and secure. And that means that they are happy and blessed. How happy are the people? Well, you know people are happy when the government taxes them so that every day, not month, not year, every day Solomon can have 30 cores of flour, 60 cores of meal. And a core is about six bushels. Okay? Six bushels. 30 of those. 60 cores of meal. 10 oxen a day. 20 cattle. 100 sheep. And so many deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fowl that they don't even bother to count them. He had dominion over all these areas. He had 40,000 stalls of horses, 12,000 horsemen. Somebody's got to pay to keep these men. 
The people are so happy that they're not even bothered by these taxes. That's how good things are under the wisdom that God provides. We see how quickly things change with Solomon's son. When Solomon is gone and his son does not have wisdom from the Lord, and it doesn't take but a very short period of time, and the people say, we've had enough of these taxes. How many of you have gone home near around April 15th and said, you know what, I don't mind paying all the taxes. I wish I could pay more. I'm so happy. Seems unusual, right? Seems like it might even be something supernatural. Well, it is. It's the supernatural wisdom of God. You see, the people are happy. They're making true the proverb that I think probably Solomon wrote in verse in chapter 29. When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. You see, it's the wisdom of God that makes the difference, not our independence, not how much we pay in taxes, not how many laws are upon us, not how much work we have to do. It's when the righteous rule, we rejoice. So as we are faced with decisions, whether they be in local elections, in national elections, in the church, don't ever put your needs ahead of the righteousness of those who rule. Better to be ruled by those who are righteous and place burdens upon you than those who are unrighteous and do not. Because all that will bring is grumbling and complaining. This is the peace that is found, and Solomon knows it and rejoices in it. But it's not just peace, it's prosperity as well. Because you see, this list that I just read to you of what Solomon had is figurative also of what's going on in the whole nation. You see, the people aren't oppressed. They have so much abundance that they're able to give to the government. And there is no lack. And you see, that's part of the details. You see, the author wants you to get excited about this. He wants you to be excited about what God can do when he rules a nation by his wisdom. It's almost as if it's not some boring list that says, well, there are 30 cores of this and a hundred sheep. and No, it's, there were 30 cores of flour a day, 60 of meal, a hundred sheep a day, more deer than you could count. This is unbelievable what God has done. Can you imagine? It's like going to the Grand Canyon. Our author is reciting all of these details to get you excited about God and what God can do when he rules a nation through his wisdom and righteousness. Do you have that kind of passion in your homes? Do you have that kind of passion for your church? The kind of passion that if you kept a diary, you would say, there were 18 ladies at the book study, 14 guys at the men's breakfast. We've had this many families visit. We're breaking ground next week. We are training people for evangelism. People are learning how to be stewards through financial peace. We've got kids joining the church. We've got outreach to people. Can you believe it, what God is doing? 
Are you that excited about what God is doing? You should be. You should wake up every morning and say, I wonder what God's going to do today. He is so good. That's the passion that our author wants you to get. He's talking about Israel the way I talk about Houston to people who aren't from here. I say things like, yeah, we came down and candidated, and they were building, starting to build some hospital. We came back three months later, and it was done. And someone says, well, you know, America's not really growing. And I say, you know, they're planning on putting high school number eight in Katy. And people just go, wow. And I say, yeah, across the street from our church, where our church property is, they're probably going to build 5,000 homes. And I just talked to someone, and they're talking about some ridiculous number of people moving in between Katy and out west. That there's just going to be a ton of people, I don't know, 25,000, 50,000 people. You see, that's the kind of passion and excitement that comes when you see what God is doing and the opportunities he's placed in front of you. It's prosperity. But I want you to see something else, too. You see, our author, the historian, he's got two eyes. He doesn't just look backward and say, this is what Solomon was like. You see, there's an eye that looks forward, too. He's describing the most sumptuous table that a king has ever laid out. What do you think that reminds us of? But it reminds us of the table that our Lord Jesus Christ will lay out. I think Matthew was reading in Kings when he wrote Matthew 8, verse 11. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Recline at table. That's the feast that gets laid out. That makes this look like chicken feed. Are you looking forward to that kind of a feast? Are you excited about being with Jesus? Are you as excited about seeing him and sitting in his presence and contemplating him and getting his gifts as this historian was about the huge numbers of sheep and cattle and food? If you don't know that kind of excitement, If you don't have that kind of passion, maybe you don't even know there's a table. Maybe you think the best that you can ever do is go garbage dump diving and get old McDonald's fries. I'm here to tell you that that's not what God has for his people. That those who trust in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ have the table spread before them. They will never want. They will never need. They will be in the presence of Jesus in the presence of wisdom himself. If you don't know that today, you need to. Stop rooting around with brown lettuce. Sit down at filet mignon. Come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and the blessings that he gives, personified in his table. Solomon also prefigures our Lord Jesus in his wisdom too, doesn't he? We talked about Solomon being the wisest of all men. And our author here goes on and on about how wise he is. He organized the whole country. Everybody was pulled together. Countries gave tribute. There was peace. They're an international player. The table is huge. He's the wisest man that was ever known. That's true. Luke tells us, Solomon was wise, but one greater than Solomon is here. 
Do you see how then this details that are laid out, they push us on. Can you even think about putting a hundred sheep on your table today? Ladies, who wants to cook a hundred sheep? Who wants to cook 2,000 deer? I don't even think Neil would want to make sausage and meal out of 2,000 deer a day. Right? One greater than that is here. The Lord Jesus Christ. But Solomon isn't Jesus, is he? You see, in the midst of all this glory, our author reminds us of that too. He tells us there's a little time bomb ticking away here. Right now, it's kind of like if you've ever been woken up in the middle of the night by the dripping faucet. Not the kind that are drip, 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 but the kind that are drip, drip. You almost wonder if it's dripping. The time bomb in here is something that we might not realize. As our historian goes on and on, he says, there are 40,000 stalls of horses. 12,000 horsemen. Look at how impressive it is. Look at all the horsemen that we have. Then we turn to the book of Deuteronomy. Remember how I told you every king is going to be judged by the law in Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy 17, Moses lays down a law in verse 16. He speaks about the king. He says, One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you, whom the Lord your God shall choose. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire horses. Uh Uh-oh. Solomon's got a lot of horses. Well, at least he's not going back to Egypt for more horses, right? Uh Uh-oh. I turn my page. I turn my page. I turn my page. I come to 1 Kings 10, verse 26. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed at the chariot cities. Verse 28, and Solomon's import of horses was from where? Egypt. Oh, for two. For 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. Solomon breaks both of those commands. It's as if a shadow now is being cast over this. It's that like that great sumptuous meal that you ate and the The steak is incredible, and the potatoes are great, but you go to eat the vegetable, and it's just a little tough. And you say, hmm, I wonder if there's something not right with the cook. Or maybe you cut through the steak, and you get to a part that's just a little too raw, or a little too well done. It's a shadow cast over you. We need to be careful, because it's not a coincidence that this happens in a time of plenty. One of the great bywords of the Old Testament is that Israel waxed fat and forgot the Lord. That's a challenge. Parents, when your children profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, do not get complacent and say they're fine. I don't have to worry if they read their Bibles. 
I don't have to worry if they pray. When your job is going great, don't say, well, you know, I don't really need to be that involved with God's word. God's being good to me. When that building goes up on Katie Gaston, don't think for a moment that we have made it. God doesn't want complacency. What does he want? It's the same thing I've been saying to you for two years. He wants your heart. He wants you. Guard your heart against complacency. Well, this is the dream political platform of peace and prosperity. And then finally, briefly, let's look at the reality of life. The reality of life is not misery, folks. We tend to think when things go well, that's a dream. And then we're taken to reality when things don't go so well. It's a dream when we create that wonderful dessert in reality when it falls out of our hands. Right? It's a dream when we think about taking that vacation, then reality sets in when we get sunburned. That's not the reality in God's Word. The reality of life is that God keeps His promises. You need to remember that today, this week, next month, and next year. God keeps His promises. The historian wants us to know this. First, he tells us that God keeps His promise to Solomon. It's obvious, isn't it? God said He would give him wisdom, and He gave him wisdom. And... He didn't just give him organizational smarts. God did not replace wisdom with a fancy daytimer and planner and a great organizational chart and said, here, Solomon, have at it. No, he gave Solomon, what does the text say in verse 29? Understanding beyond measure. And he gave him breadth of mind. Can anybody guess what that word mind is? It's that same Hebrew word we looked at last week, heart, that encompasses not just the mind, but also all of our being. He gave Solomon exactly what he asked for, a hearing heart that was broad with understanding. He gave him wisdom that was bigger than anyone's. Look at verse 32. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, more than 1,000 songs. He knew everything about every kind of plant, from the biggest cedars to the smallest of trees, the hyssop. Those are the biggest and smallest, respectively, found in that area. He knew about all kinds of animals and birds and fish. Solomon's wisdom was bigger than anybody else's, but it was also better than anyone else's. Look at verse 30. He was wiser. He surpassed everyone in the east. And even the place that was known for wisdom, Egypt. You see, God answered Solomon's prayer beyond anything that he could hope and ask. And he gave him that wisdom to help him rule a people, exactly what Solomon had asked for. And he gave him that wisdom that God might have glory from it. Do you notice how many times in this last paragraph the word wisdom is used? In verse 29... In verse 30, twice. In verse 31, wiser. In verse 34, twice. Six times in a little paragraph. God is saying, I did what I said I would do. Trust me. 
God has kept His promise to Solomon. And then God shows that He has kept His promise to Israel. Look at verse 20. Judah and Israel were so many, as many as the sand by the sea. Does that remind you of anything? Reminded me of Genesis 22, verse 17. I will surely bless you, and I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. God promised that to Abraham hundreds of years earlier. Sometimes God's promises take 100 years or 500 years to fulfill. Solomon asked for wisdom. He got it right away. God kept that promise in a short span of time. The promise to Abraham took a while to fulfill. Don't get impatient with God. He always keeps his promises. Look at verse 21. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. And again at verse 24. For he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates from Tipsah to Gaza over all the kings west of the Euphrates. Does that remind you of anything? Reminds me of another promise in Genesis 15, verse 18. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. God keeps His promises. He kept His people promise. He kept His land promise. There's another promise, though. Look at verse 25. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba. That's the whole ball of wax in Bible speak. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. That language is Bible language. It's like a chicken in every pot. It says that they were safe and they did not want for anything. Does that remind you of any promises? It reminds me of Deuteronomy 12, verse 10. When you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when He gives you rest, safety, from all your enemies around, so that you live in safety. Micah chapter 4, verse 4, pretty much repeats this and says that's a gift of God, to have safety and to live under your vine and your fig tree. You see, the world will offer you substitutes. We're going to look in probably about ten months at a warlord that comes up to Hezekiah and he says, give up on this Lord business. Come and be our vassals. And I will make it so that every man will eat of his own vine and each one of you will have his own fig tree. Same language. But you see, that's a false promise. You might be tempted today to give in to the promises of the world. The promise of education. The promise of a good job. The promise of a perfect 401k. The promise, the promise, the promise. The world doesn't keep its promises. God does. Young people, your friends don't keep their promises. God does. Older people, 
Your government doesn't keep its promises. God does. You must look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because only in Him are these promises, yea and amen. You see, all of this really is a picture of who Jesus is and what He has done. You see, none of this means anything without Jesus. That's what this text is calling you to today. It's not calling you to do a study on sheep and rams and cattle in Israel. It's calling you to know the keeper of the promise, the wisdom of God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you trust him today? That's the call. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the promises of God are yes and amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have blessed us with this account of Solomon, that we might know your promise-keeping nature. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We trust that you will point us to him this day. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now hear the Lord's blessing. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of the promise-keeping God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forever. Amen.